Let me ask you a question. What makes us human? And what makes you different from me? In my podcast, I invite guests who have moved because their life experience, away from the cultural roots, can help us understand what we have in common as human beings beyond our diverse heritage. My name is Valerie. Welcome, Perfect Stranger. Today, my guest is Jean-Michel Giraud, CEO of Friendship Place, an organization which works to end homelessness. He was 17 when he arrived in the U.S., and life had taught him a lot since then. He's on a mission for respect for every human being. So it's about, you know, the need to be treated like a person and to be appreciated as a person and, and validated. And social justice. But the realization that a society will always, you know, have people who need the extra help uh, through no fault of their own, just because it, it happens to them, would be essential. Hear more about the importance of storytelling. It's cathartic to share your story because you're thinking uh, that all the suffering you went through is now useful in some way because you're helping people with it. And children education. Some parents probably are not careful enough how they portray things, or in some cases, their views are just full of hate. What do we do about that? How do we get children out of that mindset when they've been exposed to all that? Jean-Michel, Welcome uh, to my podcast, Perfect Strangers. I'm very happy to have you here with me. You are the director and CEO of Friendship Place. It's an NGO is working to end uh, homelessness in Washington, D.C. You joined them in 2006. I've heard about your organization not long after I arrived in D.C., 10 years ago. I've come to some of your workshops and presentations. I have raised money for your organization. And I remember one of the first questions I asked you. I asked if I should give money to people who ask for it on the streets and how I should behave. You know, you helped me realize that I shouldn't have to ask myself this question because it's just a person like you. It's another human being. So when you cross somebody, you just behave the way you behave with another human being. You look at the person in the eyes and you are kind and you try to, to respect that person. And that's really something that had struck me with Friendship Place. The fact that you really welcome everybody without judgment and you take them as they are and then you customize your help to where they are and what they can do and what they can reach to empower them. I would like to learn more about you. And the last presentation I came to, at one point, you were speaking of the young Jean-Michel who was walking on the street in San Francisco, getting in every shop to find a job. <laughs> <laughs> and I was struck by this image of you. If you can tell us why you were there and where you were coming from. Yes. Well, thank you for this invitation and thank you for your support. I did come to this country really at 17, the first summer, visiting my brother in California. 
but became very independent from him uh, right away. In the six years that we shared in the country, we actually never lived in the same city. My story actually starts probably a little bit earlier in that at uh, just before I turned 14, I needed to move to the city. I was uh, already very interested in languages and to add Russian to uh, English and German that I was studying. You needed to move to the city. Uh, my folks put us up uh, with my brother who was 19 in an apartment. So I could do that. And then the next year he left. So I had these high school years and the first year of college, actually, before I came here on my own. And so at 17, when I came that summer, I was already, you know, a pretty mature teenager uh, who had been faced with responsibilities uh, in life and felt very comfortable with that. I'm also uh, gay. I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. So when I went to San Francisco after visiting a friend who had shared the apartment in the city with us and who was from Alameda, she was an exchange student, and spending the three days we spent with her and her folks, and then you go, of course. The drop-off was in the Tenderloin of San Francisco, and I felt comfortable and decided that, well, instead of going back to Southern California, where my brother was sharing an apartment with some friends, I would just stay in the city and, and rent a room for a few days. I recognized something in San Francisco and in California when I came back, which was a couple of months later at 18 and two days, in the people I met that I thought I was foreseeing something that would be very good for me, I thought, and was quite different. And I lived in a city, as I mentioned in France, I lived in Grenoble. So Grenoble was a college town, pretty open culturally, pretty vibrant. But there was something else in California in those days that I recognized, I thought, even though I was just 18, that would be good for me. And also the recognition that fall that this was not going to be what it was for some of the friends I had met on the plane, a three-month stay, a six-month stay, but rather that this is going to be a very uh, important thing. And So it's a coincidence then that you came to the United States because your brother was there, but from there, from that experience, you knew you would come back but you still went back to France to study. Uh, no, I, I actually did not. This was October and I, I registered for school, but instead I booked a one-way ticket on a standby flight out of London to San Francisco. And so I was returning um, for what I had thought in my head might be a year and which turned out to be over 40 years. Certainly the climate was very open and in the city uh, and, and very supportive of the LGBTQ community. I think uh, we 25% of us were members of the community. Also because I was a language major and felt very comfortable already with English. And I think that in many ways, you know, language majors maybe adapt well to other cultures. And So, but your, your interest for languages, I guess, at a young age was already a sign that you would be interested to something more exotic or different from your birthplace. Or... Yes, I think so. And also, you know, growing up, we were the teaching family in a small town in France where my folks were the only teachers my mother from 20 minutes away, my father from a couple of hours away in the Alps. So there was always this feeling that, yes, we belonged and people loved us and we loved them back, but also that we weren't quite from there. And then we were raised Jehovah's Witnesses by my mother, my father, an atheist, and the town was Catholic. And so there was always a sense that maybe somewhere else would be good for me. I always 
was very much attracted to travel and other cultures. It just was really a part of my life. And again, you know, when, when you like languages, you tend to dive into cultures, I think. Yeah. So that's what happened. And then that fall, actually, you know, something uh, significant happened when I was in San Francisco. I think I had been there um, maybe a month, a month and a half. And that's when uh, Maya Mosconi and Harvey Milk were killed. Oh, wow. You were there when it happened. Yes. And, you know, the, the whole city, of course, reacted and both were very much liked. There were some things that were very surprising to a young person. Well, I guess coming from Grenoble, I mean, being there in the middle of these events is like crazy, no? It was crazy. It was open. Uh, I met folks who were sort of interesting characters, who were free spirits also, and were good people and helped me. You know, you need, you need help when you're at 18 in a new country. You need advice and you need to learn the ways. The advice I remember in the Tenderloin, I stayed in these hotels by the week. The first hotel, the Z, was $20 a week. And then I upgraded to the Lafayette at $40 <laughs> a week. <laughs> Much better setup. There were old hotels that had been sailors' hotels. And so, you know, people sort of uh, adopted me in a way and, and would give me advice. But it's also, you know, I was thinking of that preparing for a, a speech um, recently. It's also where I learned the expression from a very good friend, Peter. I appreciate it. He would always say that to people when they did something nice, you know, and that's where I learned this expression. It's not an expression you learn in English class, probably overseas. I was aware of some street homelessness, but not a lot because there were these hotels where for $20, you know, which all in all in 1978 was not that much money. You could raise that money, you could do some things to get it. And so the hotels took a lot of people off the street. What is happening now is that these hotels are gone for the most part. So then at that time, it's not when you were in contact with uh, homelessness. It came later in your life. Was it a coincidence that uh, you applied for this job and they were taking care of homelessness and not other issues people can have in their life? Well, I was in psych rehab and addiction and coming from developmental disabilities. That was my first job. I started by volunteering in group homes where I knew some of the staff and got interested in the field. And this was in developmental disabilities. So this was 1982. We were in the, uh, the height of the deinstitutionalization movement in uh, Massachusetts, bringing people out of the state schools and state hospitals. And there was a, a really strong sense of mission, purpose, meaning for me. I had done a lot of work in hotels, restaurants, tutoring French, th these kind of things, and they were fine. But I wanted to do something that was meaningful that, and certainly to get involved with the movement at that time was because we actually saw, you know, people as they first arrived from these state institutions. Of course, they had been subjected to substandard care in many ways, to abuse and all the things that were wrong with these institutions. So there was a sense of social justice that we were helping people move to community settings and helping them get started and start a new life. From there, I was cross-trained in mental health, always admired co-workers who had a, a sister or brother who had a developmental disability for their commitment. And then when I got cross-trained and reflected on this, I realized, well, that's why I came. 
I came with from a family where there was a depression, which was significant for us. So that's about where I was when um, Friendship Place advertised. They were looking for an executive director. They wanted things to change. Uh, the board had been running the organization in many ways. It wanted to stop doing that. It had wonderful grassroots practices that it had developed one at a time and wanted more rehab-like practices. And I was trained in all that. So hence, you know, the fact that they brought me on board and then we, we took it from there. And, and as you know, because you've heard me speak before, as a coincidence, my brother happened to be homeless right here in Georgetown about two years before I came to the States. So, of course, when you're a homelessness family member, mental health family member, addiction to... I think that for some of us, the field becomes a calling. And for me, certainly, there's always been a strong sense of social justice. So beyond the family realm, right, beyond what I saw when I was young. And it's really the fact that we absolutely have to build programs and practices that uh, treat people with dignity, respect, let people make their own choices, drive their own process. Mm -hmm. And all these key ingredients need to be there. And so for me, I think that's been essential in my commitment. But coming back to what you just said about treating people with dignity, and I was thinking at one of your presentation, you were speaking about what are human essential needs. And yeah. if you can come back on that. Well, essential needs are a place to live, a job if you can work. And most of the people we meet can work and some can't. And life with quality, with uh, friendships, relationships, a life that's fulfilling, where your medical needs are met, your psychiatric needs or addiction needs, if any. And, and at your own pace, you decide, you make the decisions. We don't make decisions for you. So it's about, you know, the need to be treated like a person and to be appreciated as a person and, and validated. The need for staff and volunteers not to see you as a file, as a, a case history or a, a case study, not at all. Rather, as a whole person to help you grow in a holistic way. We're at the core of, I think, something very special in the development of community-based programming. We're probably one of the last disciplines to develop its programming. We came after you know, developmental disabilities after mental health in the community. Now is our time. And I always say that it's a really exciting time to work in homeless services because we're developing the practices around people and around their needs by listening to them as we go along. You know, I was thinking uh, before this interview of people who are experiencing this homelessness and migrants who arrive in a new country. And I was thinking about the alienation or the estrangement that they can feel. If you see similarities between these two situations. Yes, I think there are similarities and there is a feeling of estrangement, certainly uh, for some people. There's also probably a feeling of excitement that they finally made it to the place where they want to be and feel that they'll have better opportunities. You know, they can grow here, be stable, be safer. But there's also probably a feeling of not being wanted that, that I would imagine is in, in a lot of the folks who come over and cross the border, for instance. And I have to say, it's not a feeling that I had when I came over. 
for the most part at all. Really quite the contrary, but I came under different circumstances. That, I'm sure, weighs on people, and it must be daunting to start a life in a country knowing that a large number of people wished you weren't here, for instance, and and, um, that must be terrible to negotiate in somebody's mind, I, I would think. By you as a, an idealist and a pragmatist, I don't know if I can say it like that. You know, you see people who are experiencing this homelessness and all other humans who are in this situation where they are a little bit marginalized. What do you think we can do about it? Is it education? Is it, I don't know. Be fully human. Talk to people. Look at them in the eye, you know, the way we do when with people on the street. Do you think you can teach that to children? Yes, I think children get mixed messages sometimes from their parents about this. Some parents probably are not careful enough how they portray things, or in some cases, their views are just full of hate. What do we do about that? How do we get children out of that mindset when they've been exposed to all that? Ask Alan the other day when he spoke about this own story, if it's that a good way to go about it, to have people go into school and tell about their stories. It's really important to share your story. And, you know, some people criticize the use of speakers, for instance, and say that it, somehow it's exploiting people or their story. But what I hear from the speakers at the Speakers Bureau at Friendship Place, like Alan, is that it's cathartic. It's cathartic to share your story because you're thinking uh, that all the suffering you went through is now useful in some way because you're helping people with it. You're talking about it. But I think that the more we share our stories, the better off we are. If we try to put a cap on what happened to us, uh, you know, that represents maybe even a form of trauma. And a lot of us have been exposed to trauma, of course. We don't make any progress. We're just sliding things to the side and pretending that uh, things didn't happen. You feel a lot better if you're a lot more open about what happened to you. And then the benefit to the community is huge because people understand this is now somebody who has been there. Somebody who has been on the street, who has found food wherever they could. You have slept, you know, with rodents around and, and shares that then you can't help but grasping that, hey, this happens to people. So, you know, in the crowd, there are a lot of sympathetic people. Worldview, this expands. But there are also folks who are probably thinking, why are we having these services? I get those comments, like, can't people take care of their lives? Why are people doing this? And then they need the services. Well, listen to the speakers. can happen to anybody. A car accident, the end of a job, people staying in place too long, paying high rent. And then it happens. And I think families of choice are important for us at Friendship Place. You know, we were talking about how I got here, certainly as a young person who is now living very far away from your family, you have a tendency to have people around you who form a kind of family who support you. And I think that in those years in particular, for the young people we serve on the street and help them into housing and jobs, that feeling is especially strong. You can help one another and build a family of choice, which is a solution in itself. 
the family of choice. I like this expression. It's true. It's very important, especially when you move to a new place or you can't have relationship with your families. So it can be all kind of reason why you don't have contact with your family. And, you know, when you were speaking about the essential human needs, I was thinking of that also. Every human being needs connections. And that's why, you know, it would be so much better in society if we could all work together. And some people stopped getting stuck on differences or what they perceive as differences, which in the end are, are, are just topical. They're, they're not essential. They're not deep. That's key. And we certainly also see it at Friendship Place for recovery, you know, from addiction. People change in addiction recovery for other people, for their community. They they make an effort to go a little bit further with the way they're managing their addiction. And so it's essential, you know, we, we see that. And we actually now take it all the way to job placement when I speak on that. The fact that, you know, if people are in functional addiction, it's really important to help them get a job if they can carve out the eight, 10 hours it takes to do that and to be successful on the job. And it's not at all hours uh, to be uh, judgmental and say, no, I, I can't put you in front of an employer because you're telling me you're in addiction and you're still drinking or using drugs. Rather, go ahead. You're telling me you can do this. Go do it. Go try it and be successful and add to your socialization time, add a new community to your life that you're changing for. And I, I think it's an interesting idea, you know, to encourage people who may be very reluctant to deal with people who actually share that they're in functional addiction, to move them forward uh, toward employment. Yeah, that's part of your job, I guess, to change the image we have. Well, part of being in human services and fully alive in it is to be a change agent. You do need to question things and you can have the status quo. Your programs need to evolve continuously. And when I speak, you know, on organizational transformation, systemic change, I always say that from experience, if you think your program that's been in operation 10, 15 years has become obsolete or doesn't perform as well or is not effective anymore, look closer. <laughs> I can assure you it's the case. that it is. <laughs> and that means it needs to change or maybe go. <laughs> and then you open a new program. So to settle for the status quo, I, I find really uh, dangerous in the field as an administrator because you could just be rubber stamping practices that have lost their effectiveness and, and uh, are really not helping people achieve their goals. So any plan to go to France to see a way <laughs> to improve? Well, you know, our deputy at the National Assembly came by to visit and uh, I, I gave him my card <laughs> in case in case people there in a very humble way <laughs> would like some feedback on what could be done in France. I'm sure we could share some of these practices. And as you know, at the Friendship Place, we love to do that. And as we share our practices at conferences, we always come back with a new idea, you know, that we've picked up in a workshop or, or something like that. But you have to have a curious mind and you have to be open and you have to take a chance, a calculated risk that this practice is going to work out or not. And you can't be too harsh on yourself if it doesn't. But th that's how we came to job first. Yeah. You know, uh, we decided that employment was something that everybody should have access to now. We assume employability. We put people in front of employers as quickly as we can. We average a 90-day placement time. 
But that's because we absolutely believe that everybody has a skill set they can get paid for now. It may not be the skill set they were using when they fell into homelessness. Often it's not, but it's another one that will help them up the ladder back to you know where they need to be. And that uh, model is getting a lot of attention. The uh, DC Council has funded it for the first time this year, actually. You know, it's nice to see that a practice that started just from observation, from talking to people, is now being recognized. And maybe it can be an example for other administrators out there, certainly to change what they do around employment. You know, the system keeps investing in vocational training in classrooms. And it's tempting when you're an administrator and you have the big building with empty rooms now because the services go more toward the community and follow people where they are. And somebody says, well, in that empty room, I'm going to give you half a million dollars to train people. I guess that it's tempting, but people should think whether or not it's the right thing to do. Because to hold people in classrooms for weeks or months, sometimes with no placement requirement. And another time I was in California and the folks showing me their programs were very proud of the fact that they place people at 50%. You know, you have to think of where we're going with this and you have to think of what the other 50% must have felt like after that training program, which is a promise. I really think that everybody in that classroom thought that they would be part of the first 50%, the one getting placed, right? We have to think of what it feels like to be on the other side of the table, asking for services, agreeing to participate in servicing, showing that kind of trust to people that you may just have met or that you've known a couple of months that trust is huge. And the time also that we use when we work with people is essential. It's not our time. Our time is accounted for. We have a job and a place to live. We know what we're going to eat tonight. The folks we meet don't often, whether they don't have a place to live, of course, for the majority, or they don't have a job or, or etc. So the time we use is their time. And it's really important to think of that and to use that time effectively and to have this encounter with the person produce results that come in a timely fashion. I remember when I heard you said that the first time I thought, wow, that's not common. I mean, people were helping other people never think of that. They always think, okay, what I'm going to offer them, but they never think of the person and As you said, the trust she has to put, the time she has to spend, and what does it mean for that person? I'm sure very few people think about that. And also to think of what you know and what you don't know, and the practices that you may have been trained in, including in school, but when you come out to community-based programming, they don't seem to be working anymore. And to have the courage to say, we can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. I need to open up my practice I need to grow as a practitioner. You know, the way you approach with the person uh, at the same level as you, and you listen, and they can give you insight of what you should do to help them. I mean, that's a very humble position, and I think it's very effective. But humility is key in the field, and I think we should all show as much of it as we possibly can. Kindness also. To be kind to people, to be kind to one another as co-workers, as members of the same community. And then, yes, you know, we're all the experts in our own lives, in growing it, in achieving our goals, in deciding where it needs to go, this life of ours. And so to realize that the folks we deal with who come to us for services 
are the experts in their own lives. And we have some tools that we can share with them. But always, you know, in rehab, having the conversation in the middle, never pulling it your way and starting to make the decisions for the person, setting goals for the person somehow, you explore. And through this exploration, you find new ways, you find new directions and tools even. And never, of course, any rehab from above. Never the feeling that because I'm here and you're across the table and you're looking for help, somehow my position is above yours, always on an even plane. And you have to really be able to show that and put people at ease and reach out so that the person feels that here I'm a person. For some staff, it comes naturally. They can naturally communicate that way, respond to people. And for others, they need to learn it. And that's all right too, but learning it is essential. We have spoken a long time, but if you would like to add something. Well, you know, for people to get involved and to find out what they can do to help people experiencing homelessness, to help us carry the message that, uh, again, homelessness is not a personal trait. It's not a, a character trait. It's a circumstance in life and it can happen to people. Also to carry the message that everybody deserves a proper place to live and that we can, in fact, end homelessness in this country, that the amount of money that is required, the investment required, is not something we cannot afford as a country. So why aren't we doing it? That's a good question, but that should be the subject of another interview, <laughs> because I guess there is a lot to say. Values, priorities, some of the values we were founded on in this country that people have sort of do for themselves. But some people cannot. And increasingly, in this economic system, people are falling through the cracks in higher numbers because housing is getting more and more expensive and because salaries, wages are not following. But the realization that a society will always you know, have people who need the extra help through no fault of their own, just because it, it happens to them, would be essential. We're trying our very best, all of us here who are involved in the field, to end homelessness in another way, and that is to build systems strong enough to catch people on time so we can end chronic homelessness and make homelessness as an experience rare, brief, and non-recurring. I trust you're going to go on with your fight And again, I'm very admirative of the work you do and the, the very smart and respectful way in which Friendship Place is doing it. So thank you very much, Jean-Michel. It was a pleasure to discuss with you today. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. It was great to talk to you. Be well. Yes, thank you. Uh, you too. <laughs>